Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I am on the air today with my co-host Emily Scott, Matthew Schneeman, and Jasmine Smith. How are you going? How's it going, guys? <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, pretty good with me, too. Yep. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Um, this week, we'll be talking about the eviction pause extension the uae israel agreement um the election of miss well the the election choice of miss kamala harris and much more so let's kick it off with some local news jasmine take it away okay so this is local in that it's something that affects new york state it's not specific to the city uh, this information comes from the gothamist Uh, Eviction pause extended to October 1st for New York tenants facing pre-COVID evictions by Sydney Pereira. So tenants in New York State that are facing eviction from cases before COVID-19 started could begin getting booted from their homes as soon as October 1st. Cuomo signed an, an executive order giving authority to the court system to decide how to handle evictions moving forward. So even though no tenant can be physically moved out of their home before October 1st, the new memo from Chief Administrative Judge Lawrence Marks allows for residential eviction proceedings prior to March 17th to proceed so long as another hearing is held before a judge to exhaust all options before an eviction is carried out. However, eviction cases that were filed after March 17th are still suspended. The October 1st date sets a timeline for tenants rather than checking for updates day in and day out on the court's website, according to Legal Aid Society staff attorney Ellen Davidson. However, Davidson adds that it seems incredibly unlikely that by October 1st, the virus will go away, that things will be back to normal, and that everything, all of our institutions will be functioning normally. What what I expect we're going to find is instead, we're going to be in the midst of a second wave, which would make people being kicked out of their homes into the streets more dangerous for them and worse for the city. So specific to New York City, where we live, there are currently 200,000 cases pending from before the pandemic, so before March uh, 17th. I think, and this is David said again, I think our biggest concern with cases moving forward is most tenants don't have attorneys. And she also noted that unrepresented tenants, so those who don't have attorneys, would need access to broadband internet to be able to participate properly virtually, or they would have to show up in person to housing court, which is a concern due to crowding during the pandemic. The guidance requires judges to address a range of subjects related to the case and COVID-19 concerns before a warrant can be sent to city marshals for enforcement. This includes some relief under the Tenant Safe Harbor Act, which was written to protect tenants facing financial trouble during the pandemic from from eviction, not before. Davidson says that the guidance indicates the act could protect some tenants facing eviction before the pandemic from getting kicked out, 
but you would still have to see what would happen in the court. Uh, she also adds, I think it's curious that the governor who has had so much control over so many aspects of New York state has left the fate of tenants in someone else's hands. The legal aid nonprofit is demanding Cuomo extend the moratorium indefinitely instead of giving it a deadline. Our mayor, Bill de Blasio, has said before that the city is looking into the legality of barring city marshals from carrying out evictions, and the law department confirmed Wednesday such a possibility is still being evaluated. So the governor's office did not respond to further questions about this issue. So, yeah, this year is flying by. October is, September is almost here, and October is right around the corner. So this is, um, it's good that it's been extended, but the fact that it just keeps getting pushed a little bit, I don't really think is a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. Today I saw someone had the gall to have a Halloween ad I saw online. This shit's going nuts. Um, but uh, <laughs> to respond to the actual serious matter, when you said that a lot of people don't have representation, I had, uh, I had, I, I wish I had a mind for statistics, but um, this one tenant act, act uh, activist group that I used to be affiliated with uh their pro bono lawyers found that about 95 of the cases where people had representation, they always won. And yet the majority of cases that uh, property managers and landlords bring against tenants go in, in the landlord's favor. And so that's, that's a pretty crushing indictment about the accessibility of justice in, in a housing court. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. That story is pretty I don't know what the word is disheartening, I think, in a lot of ways, because it's it's really it's it feels very about money that that you can still be evict evicted during a pandemic if you were about to be evicted. You know, it, it really was like if you didn't like lose your job or if it's not like pandemic based, like you're, you can still be kicked out during a pandemic, which tells me that the point is not to keep people off the streets during a pandemic. You know, it's about financial interests of the landlord you know and it's like there's you know and trying to i guess i don't know what this trying to do it like i guess there are it is looking out for some people but um clearly not everyone who needs a place to live yeah yeah if it, we feel so vulnerable right like i feel like everyone is you know still so vulnerable as we move um throughout this year because everything is so uncertain. I was just speaking with Jasmine before we started recording about how going back to work is just like a different place, you know, and there's so many more people now that are losing their housing, that there's a lot of people on the streets already and just um, really having a hard time trying to make ends come together. Um, it's awful when the, you know, we're not focusing on that. There's so many people that were already going through these problems and now it's just been amplified. Mm. How's uh, everyone pandemic. doing with housing? Was that I'm, Matt? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say for now, I mean, everything's okay over here. Um, my lease is kind of like up at the end of the year and it feels really kind of like uncomfortable if I should be looking for another place or not, you know, just because things are so uncertain. Um, what, what about you yeah. guys? 
Yeah, I, me and my roommate are ex- uh, extending a lease for every three months instead of every, uh, every like month to month or like a full year or anything like that. And like, I, I'm also at my, my parents' house a lot too. So I, I do have a safety net, which is really lucky. I think in a, I mean, extremely lucky. Um, so we're, we're sort of playing it, you know, by ear. Cause I also don't feel, I mean, I don't feel totally safe health wise being at my parents, like for them being close to my parents a lot, but, um, but yeah, we're playing it by ear. Yeah. I think when I, when I was reading the article, I was thinking about how arbitrary the cutoff is, you know, cause March 17th was the last day. It was either the last day that I physically was in my job. Like that was like, there are people that it could just be a difference of a couple of days between whether it's allowed for the eviction to proceed or not. And it's so unfair, you know, cause you could be in a position where you were facing eviction like March 15th and they're allowing you to be pushed out in October, like as flu season is going to get started. And then there's other people that maybe they were in danger of being in a, in, evicted like March 20th or something. And they aren't allowed to have proceedings. Like it's just, it goes to Teresa's point. It's not really about keeping people safe and keeping people housed. Like there's definitely a different agenda. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Teresa. No, I was just going to say, you know, I agree with you. And I think that's also what Emily was saying. Like, who are we protecting? You know, who are these, um, um, these evictions, like who is it really serving? Cause I understand there are people who have, um, you know, they depend on the rents of others, but the reality is like things aren't completely falling apart yet. And you think humanity was, you know, would stand up in the time like this for everyone since everybody's so vulnerable. Yeah. It's, it's stuff like this that makes me really like think about like, or get kind of like stuck in that question of like, so like, but like money isn't real, right? Like the, the money that changes hands, like is not, a, it's like the economics is always such like a weird thing. Cause like housing is real and it's a real human need. And then like money is not, it's like a man, it's like a human made like thing. And it's like, how can we do that? Like, how can we kick people out when, when they need, you know, and then it goes back to the the idea of housing is a human right. When we need it the most. And then like, why isn't housing a human right? Right. Like, absolutely. The the homelessness, the homelessness is like a a man-made construction, right? Like there is enough space for everybody in this world. We've just decided that certain people don't get access to that. Exactly. You know? What was it? The, uh, the Gothamist said they were uh, 13,000 unused units uh, currently in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can get me started. Yeah. The, those luxury, <laughs> the luxury buildings they are, they have built in Manhattan that like are, are just holding. We've talked about this on the show before. I think it's just like no one, like the owners never are never there. It's like they're used as, um, as like a, a way to store money internationally for a lot of like millionaires or billionaires or whatever. Um, but no one is occupying that space. Yeah. Emily, no intention to. Mm-hmm. I, I think what you were you're talking about, like money isn't real or whatever. People could dis- yeah. dismiss that. But yeah, it, it is interesting when you follow the train of what rent is. 
Mm-hmm. So you pay rent to someone and they use that money to pay for the property that they have, the investment that they have. And mm-hmm. that investment is currently on a mortgage to a big bank, right? And the, the mm-hmm. bank uses that money to fund itself uh, in other like financial practices and tools. And it, it gets to this thing where it is a very abstract thing, mm-hmm. but it also in a really depressing way, is the pillars of our financial system. Yeah, I mean, it's the pillars of the way the world works, um, which, like capitalism, right? Like, that's it's built on this thing that benefits a certain group of people. I mean, it's it's all really interesting, and I'm not trying to say that we can all just, like, like, oh, let's just stop doing that right now. But it's like, if you really think of, like, it's important, I think, to take a step back and be like, why? Like, why yeah. do we live in a world that's like this? And maybe there's a better way. Um, but yeah. also you brought up I, an I'm interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying you're you're not. There, that's all, You also brought up an interesting point, though. I remember when this was all starting, I saw something, was it in Illinois or something? But there was, there was some advocacy group that, that I saw this um, social media post for that was sort of like, it, I the wording was a little bit like sarcastic and sassy, but it was essentially saying to landlords, it was like, well, you know, you may like if your tenant can't pay their rent, like, oops, too bad. You made a bad investment. Like this is an investment that you made and some investments don't have a good return. But like it was just this idea that like housing is a right your investment having a financial return is not. <laughs> um, yeah, which was interesting. That's, that's very true because it, it's funny how if you are a renter, like you'll be admonished for not having saved up enough money to be able to withstand like an extended period of hardship. But then someone who it's essentially a gamble, you know, when something like this happens, it's like, that there isn't that same conversation of like, well, why weren't you saving like a portion of this income? I, I think it really, this whole thing goes to how much, like to Matt's point about how much of our financial system, like the basis of it is so corrupt. Like this country runs on a lot of debt. There's a lot of people that are in a form, some form of debt. Like even if, when you look at what's happening with people that will buy a property, but they don't really own it outright. And they anticipate being able to make a profit off of renting pieces out of it. It's like you're trying to, you're basically trying to profit off of debt and you're counting on using somebody else's money to manage your debt, you know? And it's, I really think that this whole coronavirus thing, it's, it's showing like, this is a house of cards and a lot of people are juggling and barely making it, even if they have the veneer of having some type of control because their name is on a deed. It's like, all it takes is, you know, one thing goes wrong and it's not that stable anymore because the bank can come and take your shit. (laughs) It it reminds me of the the Church of Scientology is massive property owners. And one of the ways that they do it is they keep their names off the deeds and they get like the local parishioners to put it on deeds. which is kind of a non sequitur, but <laughs> interesting business practice. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I'll, I'll make sure to add the links on our Facebook page. Um, but there's multiple like tenants use u- unions and like housing organizations that have been doing like work in the street with like blocking people from going into the eviction courts to stop landlords from filing. Um, 
evictions and it's not just happening in New York, but it's happening around the country. So it is an issue where like, if it's something that you care about, you can find people in your city, wherever you are, that are already doing that work to try to prevent people from being kicked out. Cause you know, it's summer now, but winter is coming, flu season's coming and COVID isn't going anywhere. It's also an election year and there's a lot going on with the postal service, but you definitely can't vote by mail if you don't have an address. <laughs> so. Absolutely. People vote early, vote now. You can do it right now. You know, um, people are really being urged to like start voting in early September to avoid everything that's coming this fall. Um, <laughs> as you were saying, so I'm, I'm saying that as well, but it's really awful. I really hope that something changes or something you know, that people can just really act with humanity because this could be anybody at any time. And just seeing how many people already are dealing with issues, you know, not getting back to work, illness spreading all over the country, like wildfire, you know, it's just, it's just crazy times. One last thing before we go to the next one, if you're interested and you're a New York state resident, you can go to housingjusticeforall.org. That's one word. So you can look at what their platform is, like what their direct actions are, like how you can get in touch with your reps if, you know, housing security is something that's important to you as a New Yorker. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for that story. Make sure you guys check out our Facebook page um, so you can get involved. And we're going to take our first musical break. This track today, this first one is called So Done. It's by Alicia Keys featuring Khalid. We'll be right back. Stay locked in. Cause I'm so, so done Guarding my tongue, holding me back I'm living the way that I want Cause I'm so, so done Fighting myself, going through hell I'm living the way that I want 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 I lost control over all my energy Done so much damage to my heart I've given in, I've changed my identity so Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for today's national news story. So, guys, I think he heard me last week uh, at Joe Biden. <laughs> On yeah, the show, I, I remember that shout out. <laughs> remember, I did. He I was do. Listening. You did. Yeah. Some sleepy Joe heard us, y'all. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so after weeks of carefully staged managing treat, Joe Biden named Kamala Harris as his running mate on Tuesday. So for this segment, I pulled information from an article in Rolling Stone, um, one from CNN, and also from Box.com. Uh, this election will make Harris the third woman and first black and first Asian American candidate to be nominated for vice president by a major political party. Pressure to make such a choice has been building since the killing of George Floyd that triggered worldwide protests over racial inequality. So Harris was born in Oakland, California, grew up in Berkeley, 
She's the daughter of a Jamaican and Indian immigrants and attended Howard University in Washington, D.C. and the University of California Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. She was a prosecutor in San Francisco's district attorney's office before running for San Francisco district attorney in 2003. And she went on to win the election as California's attorney general in 2010. In 2016, she became the second black woman in U.S. history to be elected into the U.S. Senate. And in January 2019, she launched her presidential campaign. Um, I was a little bit excited about her in the beginning um, just because she, you know, she came across tough and uh, definitely spoke out a lot against Trump during um, the many, many debates and all of the voices that we heard. So she was initially seen as a serious contender for the Democratic nomination, drawing more than 20,000 people to her kickoff rally. But she ended her campaign early on in the race. And since returning to full time to the Senate, she's played a lead role in the Senate Democrats response to both coronavirus um, epidemic and the increased focus on systemic racism and police brutality. So arguments for greater black representation in public institutions are especially important right now, uh, specifically in this moment during this time when we're looking to defund the police and overhaul the criminal justice system. But critics of Kamala say that she perpetuated some of these things during her time as a district attorney and attorney general. If you look at her record, it shows many contradictions. At one point, she pushed for programs that help people find jobs instead of putting them in prison. But she also felt fault to keep people in prison even after they were proved innocent. Um, and it's also been said that she implemented training programs to address police officers on racial biases, but also resisted calls to get her office to investigate certain police shootings. So uh, during her campaign, she released a criminal justice reform plan that sought to scale back incarceration in the death penalty and solitary confinement, ban private prisons and get rid of cash bail. So as you can see, she's you know, had quite the history um, on a political stage. But, you know, at this at this point, she's really making history as the fourth woman for uh, to be nominated by a major party. The other ones you'll remember, obviously, Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, Sarah Palin in 2008 and Geraldine Farrell in 1984. Another point of contention is that by naming her, Biden likely also has set the dynamics for 2024. Uh, he has a, he has said that he would stand down for another term, but given the fact that he's 81, uh, it's widely assumed that he may not run. The two are set to deliver some remarks um, in Wilmington, Delaware, and the National Convention. I believe the first uh, debate is on the 17th, August 17th. So we should be hearing from them. The debates are going to be interesting this year, obviously, because they're virtual. Um, so, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen with that, but... What do you guys think about this uh, vice presidential nominee? Mm. Yeah, I've, I've been kind of waiting to see if anybody has anything that um, I, I was anticipating a lot of kind of unthoughtful um, comments on it. Cause like in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense. She's like Joe Biden in a lot of ways. And she's also poised in a, uh, place and time for like America to like think about race and like um, and but so so I've been waiting to like see any it, it, see like um, hear from people about like what something like really thought provoking or something that uh, that I didn't see coming H has anyone been surprised by any any responses I can't say I was really surprised but I did like get sick of um, social media and black Twitter the night of the 
selection. It was just like so much of, um, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I feel like they obviously they're going to bash her coming out the door because that's what people do to women and black women specifically when um, they do things like this and make power moves and try to, um, you know, get in the ring. And I expected that, but it's really just been, you know, so much chit chatter about how she's more of the same and uh, people don't really think it's going to make that big of a difference because they're not too sure she's really popular with black voters. Um So I don't know. I mean, I think that it's interesting. I think it's obviously the right choice at this moment in time. I do feel more confident about her uh, history and her experience um, working within, you know, the legal system and things of that nature. But I'm not quite sure that, you know, she's going to be a big change or make a big difference or even where she stands um, in regards to some of these more um, legislative things because of her record. But I think she deserves a fair chance to show us. You know me, I'm always the hopeful one. Yeah, well, I I agree, too. I think that um, so I I wasn't surprised. I know that the, you know, Republicans and conservatives, obviously, we're going to be like, aren't going to be happy with this choice just because that's to be expected. I think um, I've been a little disheartened by how many like um, liberal Democrats or liberal people I've seen that are like, you know, how that it sounds like they like won't vote for her or that like, Oh, there's another choice. And it's just kind of like, there really isn't. It's like, if, if you're not, and like, that's just the way, like, I'm not saying that's a great, that's a great system to have, but like in our, the way our like country actually works right now, um, if you don't vote for, uh, the Biden Harris ticket, it's just whether or not you actively vote for Trump, it might as well be a vote for Trump. Um, and that so that's a little bit disheartening. But that being said, I think that I, I am hopeful that um, there's there's room for movement on that ticket if they don't fully align with your views. I think that, uh, you know, I saw this example like when Obama got to office, he wasn't openly pro gay marriage. And by the end, he really was actively pro gay marriage. And I think that there is room for movement on certain issues like that. Um with that ticket. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't that. be, yeah, I wouldn't be upset if they were in office. I don't think. Yeah. I think that I was also on social media and I agreed with quite a few of the takes that were pointing out the fact that, you know, representation as far as, you know, someone looking like you is not enough. So I think people that are saying, you know, like I've seen a lot of people who are like trans women that have been put in male jails because of some of her policies or even some of the things we just mentioned now about not overturning a conviction, even though there's evidence that someone is innocent. Like, I think people are within their rights to voice their concerns. And if you lived in a true democracy, that wouldn't be seen as a problem. And I don't, I wasn't excited. Like, I am not excited. I think the thing that this election and the election before it, I think, have made clear to me is that you have to try to, like, find ways to get involved in your local community with issues that are important to you and not just have it be about voting. Because there are a lot of people who, I know it sounds cynical, 
but there there is like a permanent underclass of people in this country that are pretty much in the same condition regardless of who is in the white house like not that someone like trump doesn't make it worse for more people but even if he were to not steal the election or completely fuck it up which it looks like he's gonna do even if like the best case scenario is that biden and harris win a lot of these structural issues are still going to be going on and i don't see a huge commitment to address them at the root so i think it people who are not happy with the current candidates are within their rights to feel that way or to even feel like they don't want to vote but there's so much more to being politically engaged than just that ballot. And so, you know, if that's how you feel, like do something, just like if you do feel it is important to vote, you can sign people up, like make a concerted effort to fight voter suppression and things like that. But I feel like the most important thing is to be active and not complacent whether you're going to vote or not, because, you know, that's, it's not enough. Yeah, I I agree with what you're saying. I I I don't want it to be mistaken for, you know, you got to suck it up. This is all you get. And, you know, um cuz I don't agree with that either, but I do worry that I think people like the way they like the third party split thing really worries me. Um because, you know, in an ideal in an ideal world, that wouldn't mean something voting for a third party, but in the the way our country works in a in like a real setting it's essentially letting other people decide for you who gets to be your president and that you know that's that worries me um too but i also i also agree i think you know like people should also be vocal about what they don't like about a candidate and they shouldn't just shut up just cuz it's the only option um but the stakes just feel really high right it feels like the people who are on the fence and are seeing all the negatives about Harris might, might forget that Trump is the alternative. And in my mind, however bad Harris is might be because I, you know, I do need to read more about her, her record and on certain issues, but however bad she, she might sound to you. I feel like Trump is just, we got to get him out. And it really, it feels Mm -hmm. like so many things are on the line from like, climate change to just the stability of democracy, including voter suppression, active voter suppression under the current administration. So all that feels very scary to me. Yeah, of course. Stake. I, I'd, li- I'd like to insert my my daily chant of ranked choice voting, ranked choice voting, ranked choice voting. Uh, I, I, I sincerely think that there are very few ideas that can fix the world easily. Um, and I know ranked choice voting is hard to get through, but it, it is the only f- uh, hope for democracy, in my opinion. Will you clarify what that means, Matt? Ranked, ranked yeah. choice voting is is a, a method of voting where you 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 rank your choices, right? So uh, in this election, you'd say, "I want I want the Green Party candidate," then I'll do Joe Biden, right? So. And if you're the candidate you pick doesn't get, um, it's kind of hard to explain. Basically, if any candidate gets over 50% of the first choices, they automatically win. But if, if no candidate gets the majority, then the last place person, those votes get taken out 
and then the second choice that that person picked they get reallocated oh that's so cool it's a way of you get to you get to pick who you want to pick and you get to voice who you want to pick and it it it's it it keeps like extreme candidate like i don't know it's it's wonderful and that's we'll very cool to live because it it's so disheartening ha- hearing people yelling at people saying that they don't want to vote for joe biden and like shut up and do it because it's just like that's not healthy <laughs> I, but I, agree. I, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry no, I agree too. And I do definitely think that people should be able to voice their opinion. I think when people do voice their opinion, it makes the um, candidates have to be held accountable and sometimes, you know, answer to these, um, to two people, you know, that they're supposed to speak to us. I would hope that she would make a concerted, they would make a more concerted effort uh, to do more grassroots and speak to more people. I do think that people should voice their opinions, but I'm with Emily on this one. I do feel like, um, giving people an opportunity to make a choice for you, even though it's a diabolical system that's completely unfair um, in this moment in time, in order for things to change, I honestly do believe that we just cannot vote for Trump. So if yeah. you're going to vote, get out there and do the damn thing. And let's just, you know, be more active and be more conscientious um, about the message that we share and we subscribe to. Absolutely. And, and Jasmine, Jasmine had such a good point. Like voting is a small voting is just one part of what you do, right? Absolutely. You know? That's like just the activism is how you get like candidates that you want to be running. And yeah, it's a good there's, reminder. Mm-hmm. There's a very it's an excellent um write up that sums up a lot of the ways that I feel. It's on Medium and it's written by someone named Mac. And it, the title is in quotes, Well, what are y'all going to do then? And it's basically a response to, you know, a lot of people that will, I call them like vote shamers, like they'll get upset at people who have decided to not participate in the system. Or like if you critique the candidates that already exist and they don't like it, the retort is, well, then what are y'all going to do? And he, I don't know the person's gender, but they really break down like, well, you know what, these are the things that people can do, have been doing in addition to or instead of participating in the voting system. Like, it's not the gotcha that some people tend to think that it is. So I would encourage people to read it because it is very nuanced and it's not as black and white, you know, because there's a lot of people, like the last election we had, the person who won the popular vote did not win the seat. You know, there's a lot of people that do participate. They've been doing it forever, and yet things have not gone in their way, in their favor, where they haven't seen their material conditions improve. And we're talking about a person right now who is being praised by a lot of people because, oh, like she's Black, she's South Asian, she speaks in a way that's like competent. We've been talking a lot about the police, defunding the police, like how people that are in prison don't have rights. She has been a part of that. And so has Joe Biden with him um, writing the crime bill of 94. Like those are legitimate, healthy things to discuss and to be upset about. So, you know, I hope that the conversations continue because if you can't even feel comfortable voicing those things now without being shout, shouted down or like blamed for something, it doesn't make sense to then say that you can hold someone accountable if you can't even like accept critique of them at this stage. I mean, I, I agree. I just, I hope that 
we, I wish we lived in a world where more nuanced discussion was possible or, and not that it's to say it isn't possible, but it, it does feel it like, is, it's yeah, and it's happening. It, it is, but I, on a grand scale, it's happening less and less. And there, it feels like there's less room for that in a realistic way, but that is, that is an ideal world for me too. And I think I don't disagree with that. I think that that's important. And I, you know, I, I also hope that the show, yeah, that this is a space for that as well. So, um, yeah, all the points you're making Jasmine are, are, are accurate. And, and on top of that too, I, you're exactly right. Like this, the, the presidential election is not the only one that matters, Absolutely. Um, you know, which was in Congress, people like Mitch McConnell who make a lot of really important decisions. Like we saw during the impeachment trial where local, you know, local elections can matter just as much, if not more in some cases. So yeah, that's exactly right as well. All right. Well, I definitely think we're going to have a lot more um, conversations about what's happening this fall. And I appreciate us having the space for all of us to voice our opinions and to share um, our views on what's happening in our lives and decisions that we're making. (laughs) All right, guys. Um, So let's take another musical break before we get into the world news. The next song is Colors by TMR featuring Wale. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Don't make me verbally Don't make me verbally sun you Don't make me verbally gun you Don't make me verbally hunt you down, yeah Heart in my palette, I was made this dark I still bleed red though my hair is coarse Miss me with that fake guilt and fake remorse Ask me how I feel, you just make it worse Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And let's jump right into our international news story. Matt, you're up. Okay, sounds good. Um, For a brief moment on the last piece, I brought up ranked choice voting. There's a good Patriot Act uh, that just came out uh, about a month or two ago, if anybody wants to check that out. Because I do feel passionately about ranked choice voting. And so check out Hassan Minaj, break it down for you. But we're going to move to my world news segment. Uh, This comes from Al Jazeera and uh, New York Times. Uh, Al Jazeera writes, quote, Israel and the United Arab Emirates have reached an agreement brokered by the United States to work towards a, quote, full normalization of relations, quote. Now, what does that mean? In a statement, the UAE, in a joint statement, they said, quote, Delegations, oh wait, this isn't from the statement, this is just from the article. Quote, delegations from Israel and the UAE would meet in coming weeks to sign bilateral agreements on investment, tourism, direct flight security, telecommunications, and other issues, end quote. So when I heard the news or I read the headlines, 
it was like, great, you know, a step in the right direction. The UAE is an Arab country with cultural and political ties to Palestine, who are also Arab. So an agreement between the UAE and Israel might help tamper down some of the tension and further annexations in Palestine. However, the deal has been described by Palestinians as a stab in the back. The the idea to me was, or what I thought it was, was that the UAE would work on the Palestinians' behalf towards a more stable existence. However, the deal had little to do with supporting Palestine. The most pressing threat, a continued annexation of the West Bank, was only delayed as part of the agreement. When asked, Netanyahu said he would, quote, never give up our rights to our land, end quote. In a statement by Hamas spokesman, Hazim Qassam said, quote, the agreement does absolutely not serve the Palestinian cause. It rather serves the Zionist narrative. This agreement encourages the occupation of Israel to continue uh, and Israel to continue its denial of the rights of our Palestinian people and even to continue its crimes against our people, end quote. But why would a wealthy country, the UAE, with long ties to Palestine, leave Palestine exposed instead of pushing for a two-state solution or something less ambitious but still uh, more meaningful. An article in the New York Times summarizes the agreement fairly well. Quote, the reapproachment underscored the shifting political dynamics of a region where Sunni Arab states increasingly see Iran as a greater enemy than Israel and are less willing to condition relations on a resolution of the conflict with the Palestinians, end quote. So they want to back Israel because they are scared of Iran. Okay, now a lot of this is uh, very fraught with, uh, you know, years and years of conflict and and I'm not an expert or know too much about it, so... What do I, I don't know, it feels weird kind of summarizing other countries' uh, political and military conflicts. So I thought I would turn inward a little bit um, about our place as Americans and how we all fit into this. So the Trump administration would like to view this as a success, a very presidential achievement with America back at the table brokering deals between countries, you know, something presidents you know, like to celebrate or are known for. Of course, the Trump administration is also responsible for creating a situation where the UAE is nervous about Iran as a military threat. Remember when Trump canceled the Iran nuclear deal, which reversed a lessening of military tension in the area? Remember when Trump had an Iranian general assassinated? That certainly did not de-escalate things. And now because of all of these actions, Iran is isolated and paranoid. And everyone has to base their political decisions and military decisions around that instead of other things like lessening tensions between Israel and Palestine. In other words, America had a big deal to play in all of this. And as a kid, I remember the phrase peace in the Middle East. I don't know if anybody else grew up hearing that, but I remember it and it would be used almost as a joke, as if like the Middle East could never be peaceful as if peace in the Middle East was a pipe dream. Well, first off, the term Middle East is kind of weird and Eurocentric. You know, it would be the middle, 
not the middle of the East. Secondly, the phrase makes everything seem so far away as if it has nothing to do with America. But we have always been involved. In 1953, the U.S. reinstalled the Shah in Iran and supported his suppressive, his suppressive secret police force. This led to the theocratic revolution of 1979, which leads us to the current isolated uh, Iran that is as military provocations. In the 80s, we backed Iraq in the Iran Iraq war. And then to improve relations, Reagan sold arms to Iran in the Iran-Contra scandal. So that was Reagan, but it's not just him. Obama supported Saudi Arabia when they invaded Yemen and committed war atrocities. Of course, in 9-11, we just straight up went to Afghanistan. That worked out so well that we went in, and then invaded Iraq. In 2011, just about every country picked sides and got involved in the Syrian civil war, which is still going on, as is the conflict in Yemen. And I'm kind of having a hard time coming up with a conclusion. I wrote some stuff about how, like, military decisions, you know, like full pacifism, can't really do that. But I don't know. I just really struggle when, when talking about this stuff because America has such an awful track record about getting involved. And it's very depressing um, with, all of these, with all of these conflicts. Um, but... Who knows? Maybe this this little uh, deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel will lead to something. I don't know. Hopefully, I don't know. As you guys can hear, I'm feeling fairly um, <laughs> depressed about all of this. What are your thoughts? I can understand, Matt. I mean, I feel like sometimes there's so many deals made, but like what what kind of progress is actually made? You know, diplomacy is always great on, on the world stage, I guess, if it's going to stop people from being oppressed by governments and make a more um, diplomatic region, if you will, provide any sort of stability. But I just feel like all the time a deal means there's like a back back door deal. <laughs> Maybe I'm just being cynical, <laughs> but sometimes I feel like when we have these deals between countries, you know, even though they talk about peace, like what's really happening here and that's yet to come, you know? Um, wh one thing I'd like to add is I just like read this kind of like shadily put together little conclusionary essay. And I really paint like that entire region, which is a massive part of the world as being like war torn and awful. And that's, that's not an accurate thing. I'm just talking about military stuff. You know, these are countries with cultures that go back 7,000 years and, uh, so, so I want yeah. to acknowledge that I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm, not telling, I'm not describing reality. I'm just describing military uh, history. I'm glad you clarified that point too, because I think that is important. Um, yeah. And I also, we're also not going <laughs> to, I think um, it's a very, very complicated issue to, we'll only be able to scratch the surface here in the next few minutes for sure. But um. Mm. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's concerning that from what you said, Matt, that people who are actually in Palestine do not see this as a good thing. That's correct. Yeah, they, they feel a, a bit betrayed because the UAE, uh, they felt they, they should have been larger advocates for them. to, But it seemed the deal was had more financial and military ties so that uh, they have the joint enemy of Iran. And so that seems that was the main accomplishment was 
you have another country aligned against Iran. Right, I see. So instead of joining or feeling like, I I feel like some of the things that I saw people commenting from outside were making it seem as though it was good because it would help to improve things for Palestinians, but I can see how they're saying that it might be the opposite. Well, they delayed uh, Netanyahu and other uh, has been increasingly uh, trying to get more settlements in the West Bank. And so part of the detail, part of the deal was Netanyahu was like, "Okay, we won't do that. We'll hold off from doing that. But he's alluded to wanting to continue to still um, get settlements and take uh, more land in, in the West Bank. So it's. Yeah, I, I when I first read it, too, I also I saw that it part of the deal would be um, backing out of those settlements, which would be a step towards a two party or a two state solution, which is a really good thing for most people involved. Um, and yeah, and hearing that he was like, just kidding, that we'll never do that. It's really fucked up and also feels like it should be like a deal breaker in some ways. I don't I guess I don't really understand the who's agreed to what here. Um, but yeah, that was upsetting for sure. Emily, do you have a a diverse family of Jews with a bunch of different opinions or? So, um, we're, we're all Jewish, but, um, not, um, we don't really talk about Israel a ton. I, I have, uh, my mom's side of the family, um, big, like, uh, my grandpa, has been a, a few times and my, my, both my cousins too have like led have been on birthright trips and stuff like that. Um, we don't really get into the politics of what's going on over there. I think because we're not citizens. So we, I think maybe there's like, I mean, there's a certain understanding that there's going to be nuances that are lost. I think if I, we did bring up human rights abuses, there'd be a, pretty much an agreement that that's fucked up and needs to stop. Um, but I also, yeah, I also shouldn't talk for everybody because <laughs> um, we don't talk about the the politics that much. But yeah. But yeah, Israel, I think we'd all agree that it's a really complicated situation, maybe at least. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> but yeah. 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 People think like America is like so uh, divided and uh, but like there there is some fire hot uh, stances and opinions um, about Israel and, and Palestine. Yeah, and I think I think it does get complicated. And for like, I mean, there's there's it's black like the human rights abuses is is a black like this. It either is or it isn't. But I think um, the oh, well, I don't. I think that there there does there is some le- less like um, there's other things that get lost in translation. Um, because yeah. we are, our, our issues with racism here don't translate exactly like a hundred percent to what's going on there. And I think that there's some stuff that gets lost in translation conceptually. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of fucked up shit happening there too. So I don't mean to say that there isn't, but mm-hmm. yeah. Could, you, could um, you give like an example of what you mean? Like something that doesn't translate? Well, I think it's it's a conceptual thing, right? Because like it, it's it's like there there's human rights abuses, then there isn't. But you know, 
the Israel Israel it's not like Israel and Israelis and Palestinians are just separate races, right? Because they're Arab Israelis. Um, it's not like everyone there is Jewish and white, and all Palestinians are Arabs and brown. It's like it's 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 not like the the treatment of black people in the U.S. versus like white by white people. Like the the, is, the supremacy issue is is much more complicated there, um, and it, it's it is there's like. It gets really it's 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 all conceptual at that point, though, um, because I like, you know, the the treatment of any group of people by the people in power in, in a negative way is bad. It's bad, but it's the history there. It just doesn't it doesn't translate exactly. And I think that people like to look at things in a way that is that they understand and in a lens they understand, but it's hard to fully grasp everything for as, as Americans, I think, cause we, we put our lenses on it and our history and the fucked up shit we've done onto other countries, but it doesn't always translate a hundred percent, I think. And I think it, it, it kind of creates black and white issues out of some gray areas sometimes, mm-hmm. but yeah. Want to pull us out of this with, with some good news? We got, Oh my God, I'd be happy to. I don't, does anyone have anything they want to say? You can tell me I'm wrong <laughs> if you think I'm wrong, but um, before we move on. I just, I don't know enough specifically about, like you said, it is a very long, difficult situation. So I, I don't want to speak out of turn. Like I do think it would be worthwhile to maybe speak to multiple people that are experts or to do like a deep dive one day. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, we can, we can talk about doing like a whole episode on Israeli, Palestinian, Middle Eastern conflicts. We could, we could spend like a few months (laughs) working on getting some research backed up for that for sure. Yeah. Cause I agree. I'm also, I'm also talking of course with my own lens. Right. So I'm, I'm sure that I have biases that I have trouble overcoming as well. But, yeah. yeah, and it's it's also like sometimes it can be not that this is what is happening with you right now, but in general, sometimes it can become like a way to shut down a conversation is to be sure. like, well, I, well, you don't know because you don't live there. It's like, well, I wasn't yeah. a slave either, but I know that was wrong. Yeah, you know, no, like sure. it's still like I think it's. I agree, it's too. Still, and yeah. yeah. I, I also try not to do that as well. I think that um, it, it's. Yeah, I think it's it's a complicated issue for sure. And I, I don't mean to shut it down as well. And I, I agree that like I, I was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. It is, it is just it is just a really wild thing, you know. Um, yeah. Israel didn't exist. And like it was it was a U.N. kind of like created. Yeah. <laughs> like it's right. really crazy. It is. And there's a lot of, yeah, I mean, I, maybe we, I feel like, why don't we, I guess we should table it just for the sake of time. And maybe we as a group can talk about the next time, like how we want to maybe talk about this more in depth in the future. Cause I agree that it would be worth probably doing. Yeah. Okay. You got a minute and cool. a half. Is that oh, enough? Right. All right. Emily, yeah, please yeah. give us some good news. Uh, 
I will tr- do my best. All right. So this story comes from an August 10th article on Tanks Good News uh, by Gabby Gimson uh, or Jimson Gimson titled Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation teams up with vaccine maker to develop $3 COVID-19 shots. Uh, the article explains, quote, the organization has donated $150 million to the Serum Institute of India, the world's largest vaccine maker, the Gavi Vaccine Alliance announced Friday. Uh, in case you didn't know, the Ga- uh, Gavi is composed of core partners like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And on their websites, it says uh, it, quote, helps to vaccinate, vaccinate almost half the world's children against deadly and debilitating infectious diseases. Um, the article continues, quote, the large donation will help move along research and development and hopefully make an eventual COVID-19 vaccine available to 92 poorer countries for no more than $3 per dose. Uh, Gavi CEO, Dr. Seth Berkeley, is quoted as saying, uh, too many times we've seen the most vulnerable countries left at the back of the queue when it comes to new treatments, new diagnostics, and new vaccines. He continued, if only the wealthiest countries in the world are protected, then international trade, commerce, and society as a whole will continue to be hit hard as the pandemic continues to rage across the globe. Uh, for a comparison, American biotech company Moderna just announced that it would be charged uh, charged between $32 and $37 per dose for the COVID vaccine it's developing, which is more than 10 times what it would cost with the um, Bill and Melinda Gates donation. Um, yeah, boo. At some point, we should go more in depth into how pharmaceutical companies always say their pricing is so high because of the cost of research and development. Uh, but big pharma actually spends way uh, more on marketing and sales than it does in R&D pretty often, which is really fucked up. And there's an Instagram account, um, Pharmacy Verification, at Pharmacy Verification, that has some good statistics on that. Um, and then, of course, the fact that Bill Gates is a billionaire and if billionaires shouldn't exist, there's, there's not, you know, <laughs> nothing is all good. But the fact that there, there's an active effort out there to make sure um, as many people worldwide as possible has access to a vaccine and not just people who can afford it, I think is a good thing worth highlighting. So, yeah, that's my story, guys. Beautiful. And that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thanks for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on the RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or the Radio Free Brooklyn app on Spotify or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. If we have a little song, a little bit of time, I think we're going to play you out with our final track of the day. This is Chica with My Power. We'll see you next week. Bye. My work is my power, power. My work is my, my work is my, my work is my power, power. My work is my, my work is my, my work is my power, power. My work is my, my work is my, my work is my power, power. My work is my. Okay, let me paint a picture of an A1 world. Villain is defeated and the nerd gets the girl. Yeah, I used to fantasize and let my thoughts unfurl. Mine was tangled as Rapunzel trade the locks for a curl. Give a twirl. Tell me what I got a dream for lately. I've been all around the world and I done seen more lately. I'm a beast, rule breaker. Clean, none major. When I pull up to the scene and put that pen to the paper. I change trajectory, never can get the best of me. Spicy, I got the recipe. All of my people next to me, they need to try and mess with me. I'm better as your friend and not an enemy. Disintegrate your click, cause what's the tip next to a centipede? It's crowning more dramatic than a pregnancy. I came to the world and now they cannot put an end to me i tried to make a dollar but instead i made change now i see the bigger picture man this life is so strange what a range but my work is my power power my work is my my work is my my work is my power power my work is my my work is my my work is my power crazy with the skill believe me i can go hours dance beyond the pain to
say the rain a cold shower. Gotta play the game to ask the team what's your power. I used to dream of six figures. Like, can they hear me? I'm a